0: Amen. Church, would you remain standing with me and follow along as we read the 110th Psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
1: Amen. You may be seated. So Mark chapter 8, verse 29, proved to be the real turning point in this gospel that we study. Everything that Jesus had been teaching, all that he had been doing, was leading his disciples towards this point. And from that moment onward, Jesus' focus would be on taking these 12 ordinary men and preparing them for the death that awaited him in Jerusalem, and then the ministry that would be entrusted to them as he returned to the Father. So you'll recall that Jesus was leading these men into the region called Caesarea Philippi there in the north. It was along the way when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? The disciples answered, they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah. To which Jesus responded, but who do you say that I am? This question didn't come out of nowhere. This was an ongoing conversation. And the disciples' response, this wasn't going to be a spur-of-the-moment confession. They had surely been thinking about this for months. You'll remember their response as Jesus calmed the storm. They were out on the sea in the boat together, and with just a word, peace, be still, calm came from chaos. They looked at each other. What kind of man is this that even wind and waves obey his commands? See, Jesus had been revealing his identity to these men. You must know that there is no more blessed gift in all the world than for the Son of God to reveal himself to us. He had shown them so much. His ability, again, to bring order out of chaos, to heal the sick, to preach with absolute authority, to command and even the demons must have obeyed him. They had witnessed so much evidence as to the identity of Jesus Christ. and So we don't know who first said it out loud. I have to imagine maybe it started as a whisper, but then eventually it was all they could think about. Could this really be Messiah? Is Jesus really the Christ? This man that we eat fish with, that we sleep together with under the stars, could he really be the promised Christ? Dear friends, who do you say that Jesus is? There's no more important question in all the world. This isn't a secondary issue. Your Christology matters. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? As we prepare to come to this table, commemorating who Jesus is, celebrating what he's done on our behalf, anticipating his glorious return, what thoughts do you have of him? What words do you speak about him? When you pray with your children at night, who is this Jesus in whose name you pray? Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, certainly this question was buzzing all throughout the temple courts on this Holy Tuesday. People were wondering, who is this Jesus? Could he really be the Christ? So with that, I invite you to stand to your feet, please. We return together to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. I begin reading in verse 35. This is the word of God. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we don't gather today just to study some ancient words. We don't gather today just to impress each other with knowledge of an ancient book. Father, we don't come together just to bask in the history of your people. Father, we come today because we want to know you. We want to see you. We want to follow and obey and honor and glorify you. And we know that we see you most clearly in your son, Jesus Christ. So help us this morning to see him clearly, to think of him rightly, to submit to him fully. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the text began like this, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple. See, those of you that were with us two weeks ago, you'll likely remember that Jesus had just handled all of these loaded questions with absolute brilliance the religious establishment they had gathered together in one wave after another they came and they ushered they issued to him these seemingly unanswerable questions trying to trap him in his own words perhaps trying to get him to speak such blasphemies that the crowd would abandon them and they could demand his life maybe seeking to get him to speak against Rome in such a way that they would execute him but trap after trap came Question after question was presented, and Jesus stepped through with absolute ease. Utter brilliance, effortlessly handling their very best shots. You may remember the text concluded by saying that after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. They knew that they had been defeated. They tried to match wits with the Son of God, and they walked away absolutely beaten. And so as they gathered together, licking their wounds, trying to figure out what what their next move was going to be, Scripture tells us that Jesus then begins to teach. Standing there in the court of Gentiles, we don't know exactly what Jesus was teaching about on that day. We don't don't have his exact words recorded for us, but I can assure you the majority of the content was focused on this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, Jesus had taught on many things. He talked about taxes. He talked about Caesar. He talked about worship. He talked about the law. He talked about the resurrection. But this was the issue. This was the purpose in his coming out, to reveal to people his identity and to assure them that this gospel that he proclaimed, the good news of Jesus Christ, to assure them that it was right and it was true. They could devote their lives to it, repent and believe in this gospel. What does that mean? It means to quit relying on your own righteousness. Quit viewing all your problems in this life. Quit viewing all the sin, all the filth, all the dysfunction in your home. Quit viewing it as a problem caused by something out there, just external circumstances experiences, quit being led by your emotions, quit blaming the Gentiles for your oppression. Turn inward and look to yourself and recognize that from within you, evil springs forth. That the sin in your life, that the evil, the destruction, the chaos, it all comes from a heart that hates God. You may claim to love God, but deep down you don't want to submit to his reign. You don't want to honor him as the creator of the universe. You want to build for yourself your own kingdom. And so you come to a place where you recognize that life is short, that someday you're going to die and you're going to stand before the God of the universe, that someday you're going to stand in judgment and you're going to answer to him for every single word you've uttered, every thought that you've had, every action that you've taken, and then panic sets in. So you start to build for yourself these religions, these ways in which you can quiet your conscience. You can lull yourself to sleep at night, through whispered hushes, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. Just add a little bit of religion, Just do some righteous works. Just do your best to uphold the law and then surely in the end, God will weigh the scales and he will find you. He will find you as righteous and you will have access into the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes and he preaches a very different gospel than that. He tells them the problem is you and because you're the problem, you must die. The wages of sin are death. Not only do you owe my father your life, not only do you owe him the punishment, the payment for your sin, which is death, both physical and eternal. But the old you must die completely if you would have any hope to walk in righteousness, any hope of walking in faith in this God. This God who has issued issued forth promises saying that he is a just God, he is a righteous God, but that he is also merciful and gracious. That His desire that none would perish. This was the gospel that he preached. This gospel has found its identity in him. So as Jesus is revealing to these people who he is, at the very same time, he's showing them their only hope for salvation, their only hope for entrance in the kingdom of God. He was preaching the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then you may enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, as the one that is doing the teaching, it's now Jesus' turn to ask the questions. Again, he has entertained these men he has allowed them to come after him, throwing their very best haymakers, missing at every turn. And that was his turn to ask the questions. They would be the ones to answer. As Mark records it, Matthew, uh, as Matthew records it, excuse me, Jesus says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Dear friends, I don't think it's possible for us sitting in 21st century America to fully understand the amount of anticipation and excitement that the first century Jewish man carried with regards to Messiah or the Christ as he is called in Greek. You see, there's never been a time for us when we, didn't, when we knew of the Christ as anything other than Jesus. Those of us that grew up in Sunday school, we thought Christ was Jesus' last name. We've never known any concept of the Messiah that didn't immediately draw our minds to Jesus of Nazareth. And yet that wasn't the case for the first century Jewish people. They didn't immediately associate the Messiah with the Son of God. They certainly didn't immediately associate him with this man who was Jesus, the son of Mary. Now there isn't really a consensus, even amongst Jewish historians, religious historians, as to what the first century Jewish people believed about Messiah, what they anticipated about the coming kingdom of God. In addition to that, as we studied through this Holy Tuesday, we found that we can't just lump all the people together, even the religious elite. We can't all just lump them in together and say this is what they believe. There would have been a broad range of understanding of who Messiah was. But we do know this, that the Jewish people, they could look back over thousands of years and they could see God's faithfulness. They could see how time after time God chose to show up and prove to be mighty on behalf of his people. And that he chose to do this through men. That it was always God's plan. Going back to the very beginning, it was always God's plan that man would be his representative on earth. That it would be man that brought in order where there was chaos. There would be man that would preach his law. There would be man that would save his people when they found themselves enslaved. And so we can look back over thousands of years and constantly find God saving his people through saviors with a lowercase s these seemingly ordinary men that God would set aside and call to the purpose of freeing his people, of redeeming his people from slavery, as calling them to turn their hearts back towards him in righteousness. And yet, time after time, what we found is these are broken and fallen people, fallen people leading other fallen people. At the end of their ministries, every single one of these men would die, and whatever reforms they brought, they proved to be short-lived. The people would find themselves right back in the very same predicament. We see this cycle play out most clearly in the book of Judges, is the people would sin against God, he would raise up a nation, they would drag them away into slavery, the people would cry out, God would raise up a savior, again with a lowercase s, this savior would come, he would work on behalf of God, representing God, representing the reign of God here on earth, setting his people free, then eventually the people would fall right back in the same pattern of sin and find themselves right back in slavery. I don't know that I see myself in scripture anywhere more clearly than in the book of Judges not as the savior, mind you, but as a man that continually cries out for help in the middle of my sin, and then no sooner does God drag me out than I jump right back in the same pit. But we see this picture all throughout the history of God's people, and so they were very familiar with this picture of God raising up these men, fallen men, ordinary men, broken men, men who died, but men nonetheless to represent his reign here on earth. And routinely, God would promise to his people, there's going to be another. He's going to be like these others, but greater. See, whatever reform that he brings, whatever freedom that he offers, whatever power he comes in, whatever preaching he delivers, it's going to be the ultimate, the truest, the highest, the greatest. This is the promised one. This is the true Savior. And his reign, his rule, his majesty, it will not be temporary. It will not end with his death. It will be eternal. It will be unending, and the righteousness that he calls you to, it's not gonna be your own righteousness. He's not gonna preach to you an external law. He's gonna come and fulfill the law, fulfill all righteousness, and then call you to turn back towards him. He's not going to be like the others. This was Messiah. This was the Christ. This was the anointed. That's what Messiah means. It means the anointed, or Christos in Greek. Now, the most literal explanation for what it means to anoint somebody physically We know it's just to take some oil and rub it or pour it over someone's head. But throughout Scripture, what we see is that this has a deeper meaning, a spiritual meaning. That God would often have people anointed with oil as a sign of consecration. This was a setting aside, a making of someone holy and special, equipped and empowered for the work that God called them to. Your mind might go to Elijah, pouring oil over the head of Elisha in 1 Kings 19, a picture that God had now chosen this man to be his prophet that this would be the man through whom God would speak to his people and call them back to, to himself. Or you think about Moses pouring oil over the head of Aaron and his sons, anointing them, consecrating them, setting them aside for the office of priest, that they would represent man before God, offering sacrifices and seeking to make atonement for their sin. Or certainly your mind might go to Samuel going out and finding a young boy called David with a horn of oil pouring it over his head, a sign that God had chosen this man to be his king, that he would go out and fight on their behalf. This is what it meant for men to be anointed. These earthly representatives having literal physical oil poured over their head. But the anointed one, the Christ, Messiah, he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus, when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, he stood there in a synagogue and he read from the Isaiah scroll. Specifically, Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He would be filled with power. The Holy Spirit without measure given all authority, all power, an unending dominion, an everlasting throne. The Christ would be unlike any leader Israel had ever seen. He would be prophet, priest, and king, all wrapped up in one, but perfect. You see, all these others, they had just been signposts. They had just been markers. They had just been shadows of the substance of the true king, the true prophet, the true priest, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Christ. But because the people had such limited vision, because they couldn't see past their own bellies, You see, they had no idea that the true problems in this world originated from the hearts of men, especially not their own hearts. And so what they longed for was fattened calves, sweet wine, a table set in Jerusalem. They longed for earthly favor. They longed for earthly freedom. They longed for an end to temporal suffering. That's what they looked for. A man that was just like the others, just a little bit better. Isn't that what we do? We'll do better this time. Just give us a better version of the last one not recognizing what they needed of something altogether different. And so when they came to Jesus Christ and they saw this authority, they saw this power, they saw him doing things that the Messiah was said to do, they saw in him evidence that he may have been the Christ, they began to allow themselves to grow excited. They anticipated that he was gonna come swinging the sword, he was gonna set them free to roam, because remember, they're the problem. It's always the outsiders that are the problem in the hearts of men. So they believed that that perhaps Jesus was gonna come as the Christ, much like David, He was gonna swing the sword and he was gonna chase these Romans out from this land. Again, setting a table for them. They were gonna have peace and prosperity following after this earthly king who is the Christ. This was the anticipation. And now Jesus, as he comes towards the final days of his life and this anticipation grows, no longer is he calling men to silence. You'll notice that before this, anytime men began to get some inkling that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, anytime anyone made that confession, he would command them to be silent because men couldn't see past their own visions of who Messiah was, constantly trying to take him to be an earthly king just like the kings that had gone before. But now he was no longer doing this. He was giving them one last opportunity to understand who he was. Again, Jesus, as an act of absolute grace, he was holding himself before them and saying, no, this is who I am. And so he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The Christ is the son of David. This isn't just what the scribes said. This is what everyone said. Again, in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They answered him, the son of David. So not only did everyone say that the Christ would be the son of David, they were correct in saying this. You remember that back when God was speaking to King David, he was making a promise to him near the end of his life. Second Samuel verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. It reads like this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, you'll notice that within that promise to King David, God talked about when your son commits iniquity. So there was some degree to which God was talking about David's earthly lineage, his sons who would sin. And boy, did they sin. But his promise there is, look, when your son sin, I will not withhold the throne. I will not pull him off the throne like I did with King Saul. Because I'm a God who promises and who upholds my promises despite your unfaithfulness. Your promises, my promises, the fulfillment of my promises and my decrees and my ordinances, they don't depend upon your ability to be faithful, your ability to be sinless. He says, I will not withhold them. I will not pull them off of the throne like I did with Saul. So there's some degree to which this promise he's making was talking about the earthly lineage of King David, but there was a purpose beyond this, above this, far greater than this, that the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant. It wasn't to be found in Solomon or Rehoboam or any of David's sons. It was pointing us towards the Christ, the son of David, whose kingdom would not end, who eternally would reign on the throne. That's the promise. This promise goes back even further than David. You may recall, if you turn further back in your Bible, to Genesis forty nine, that Jacob he was so trusting in the promises of God that even as he and his family packed up and went into Egypt seeking from Joseph food to save them from, this, uh, from the famine that had come upon the land, he was, so, he was so confident in the promises of God knowing that God had promised this land called Canaan to him and that they would not re- remain there forever. That he's sitting there and he's saying blessings over his son near the end of his life. In Genesis 49.10, it comes time to bless Judah and here's what he says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So he's saying the scepter, the sign of rule, the sign of the kingdom. It shall never depart from between the feet of Judah. This was the promise of an eternal king before Israel even even had an earthly king. And this is important for us to see because you'll likely remember that God was the king of Israel. That God was a faithful king. He had gone before them in battle. He had provided for their every last need. He had established and upheld a perfect law. What other king would you need? Only a fool would reject a king like this in light of an earthly king, but that's exactly what Israel did. You remember they came to Samuel, and they said, Samuel, your sons aren't like you. We can't trust that after you die, they're gonna lead us in the same way. We want a king just like the rest of the world. Give us a human king. Give us an earthly king. Give us a king like all the nations around us. So Samuel went to God to lament this truth, knowing this was great sin on behalf of the people. And yet what God tells him is, same but they've not rejected you, it is me that they have rejected. And yet, dear friends, what you see in this is that even in these people's rebellion, even in their rejection of God as their king, they were upholding his promises. For 700 years before this point, God had promised there will be a king from the line of Judah. There will be a king from the line of David who will reign forever, who will represent me forever. This is all, even in men's sin, Even in our rebellion, even when we reject God, we're playing a part in his providential plan throughout creation. We see this even in this. And so over and over again, God would call his people to remember this promise. He would speak through the prophets as the people would, they would lose hope they would begin to think that maybe God had failed in his promises. Over and over through Amos and Hosea and Micah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, God was consistently calling his people back to this hope, back to this promise. Even as they were scattered, even as the kingdom split in two, even as the people were carried off into exile, listen to Ezekiel 37, I begin in verse 23. He promises them that the kingdom someday, that all the peoples of God, all the people who have been scattered throughout all the earth, that they will once again be united under this singular king. Verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them And they shall be my people and I will be their god my servant david shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes long after david is dead he is saying david shall reign my son david they shall have one shepherd. But you see all this wrapped up in this. This is more than just an earthly reign. This is more than just an earthly kingdom. He's talking about the condition of their heart. No longer will you walk in these backslidings. No longer will you rebel against me. It's your only hope to walk in righteousness. Your only hope for personal holiness. Your only hope to uphold my commandments. It's found in this one that I'm sending. But they completely missed it. Because they were so dead set on this earthly picture of a king. They couldn't see beyond their immediate suffering. Their immediate hopes and their immediate dreams. I pray you see how much, though, how much more God had painted in this picture of Messiah. How much these people should have placed their hope. That's the thing. They had anticipated this coming Messiah with great hope, with great anticipation. And their bar was set so low. If they would only grasp the truth of who God was promising the Messiah to be. And so we see it all coming. For more than a millennium, these men had been waiting for the coming of this son of David. Now, there would have been hundreds of people, maybe thousands of men that were there in the city of David, in Jerusalem on this day, that could have traced their lineage back to King David. You have to imagine that every time a mother found that she was pregnant with a little boy, every time a mother and father, some couple that came from the line of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, particularly from the family of King David, you have to imagine that every time they had one, they prayed to God, dear God, please let my son be the Christ. Please let my son be the Savior that my people have waited for. But time after time, they found that it wasn't the case. None of them did the things that Jesus did. And so as Jesus came and he did these, we saw the anticipation grow. This is why we find blind Bartimaeus crying out as Jesus is coming in just before this Holy Week. He's just headed to Jerusalem crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, you remember as Jesus took active steps to make clear that he was the son of David taking the colt of a donkey and riding into Jerusalem. How the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. They knew who he was. He was taking active steps to reveal to him, I am the promised son of David. Now the genealogies, they were kept in the temple. And so you better believe that these priests, they had gone and looked this up. If Jesus didn't come from the line of David, this whole thing falls apart. That's why we see both Luke and Matthew giving for us genealogies, making clear that Jesus had, in fact, come from the line of David. But again, this whole thing would have fallen apart. Has these priests, as these scribes, as these elders, had they had the ability just to go to Jesus' family tree and prove he had nothing to do with the line of David, all of a sudden the cries stop. The crowds shrink up. And yet they couldn't. They found, in fact, that he was from the line of David. Coincidentally, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the temple was burned up in the year 70 A.D., those genealogies went up with it. So my heart breaks for the Jewish people today because they wait for the coming Messiah. They wait for the Christ to come. They long for the son of David. But how would they know it's him when he comes? They've got no way to check these genealogies. And yet they had proven that this was, in fact, Jesus, the son of David. So he asked the people, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Again, he's not denying this truth. He's not diminishing it. You'll notice that when when the crowds cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't deny that claim. He would call them to silence. But now what he's doing is he's holding before them the truth that I am the son of David. I would have you remember that even in the very last chapter of Scripture, even in Revelation 22, what we find is Jesus still referring to himself in accordance with being the one that is the son of David that all that it means to be Messiah, all that it means to be the Christ, all that it means to be the son of David, still continues on with Jesus, even in his heavenly reign today. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. we read this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus, again, is not denying this. He's helping us to see the deeper meaning of what it means for him to be the son of David. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Verse 36. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Did you catch that? Jesus is confirming the, identity, the authority of scripture there. He's confirming that it is in fact the word of God that we read in the Old Testament. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. These words came through a man called David. David through his personality, through his experiences, through his emotions, through his talents. These were his words, but over and above and beyond, superintending, this was the word of God that was coming through this man. We spent more than a year on Wednesday nights studying through the first book of Psalms, Psalm 1 through 44, and what we found there is that David was a real man. He was a real man with real troubles. He had earthly enemies. He had earthly illness. He had earthly sorrows, and he was constantly repenting of his sin and crying out to God for immediate help. It, it wasn't that, Jesus, that, that David was acting something out. It wasn't that David was, was playing a drama before us. David really needed God's help. David was truly desperate for salvation from God, and he cried out, and yet what we find is that ultimately, he was pointing forward to something that would only find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You see, if what we've got here is just the words of an ordinary man named David, what we've got are some helpful, some useful, some interesting stories that can do nothing to change your life. But if what we've got is the word of God, what we've got is promises that found their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, then we have the living word of God that can transform you as you sit under it with the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's confirming for us here that, yes, this word, this was spoken through God. This wasn't just the words of a man called David. This wasn't a man that was confused. And David seems to have some sense of this. Now, we don't know how this works. I don't think, like, David's eyes rolled back in his head and he went into, like, autopilot and just zoned out when he wrote them. Again, God was working through the personality through the experiences of this man. And yet we do have some sense that even David knew what was happening as he was writing. We read in 2 Samuel 23 verse one, it says this. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. We see some evidence that even he knew what he was writing was the word of God and not just his own words. So again, Jesus isn't diminishing the word that was written by David, he's elevating it. He's saying, this is the very word of God that you hold in your hands. And what he says is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What Jesus quoted there was Psalm 110. That's the Psalm that David read for us earlier. As best I can tell, this is the most often quoted passage of the Old Testament anywhere in scripture. By my count, there was something like 33 times where it was either directly quoted or there was some allusion to it somewhere in Scripture. He begins with the very first verse. of it. It's not a long psalm, seven verses. David read the, the whole psalm. But he begins with the beginning of it. The very first, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. The Lord said to my Lord. Now in Greek, the word Lord is Kyrios. But what you'll find if you go back to the psalm, if you go back to Psalm 110, as you go back and you read in the original Hebrew, what you'll find is there's two very different words that are used there. That first Lord, you'll find that it's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the Tetragrammaton. That's God's covenant name. That's the name by which God revealed himself. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. You remember that as Moses met with God and God told him, I'm going to perform mighty miracles. I'm going to send plagues. I'm going to set my people free. I'm going to speak to Pharaoh, and you need to go, and you need to be my mouthpiece in this way. He says, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am the God that is so other. I'm so much higher, so much greater. The way I relate to time, the way I relate to space, the way I relate to love, the way I relate to wrath, the way I relate to mercy, the way I relate to justice, the way I relate to all things is so much different than you. There's no way I can identify myself other than by myself. I am who I am, Yahweh, YH." W-H. That's what it means in your Bible. When you look back in the Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord. Now that second Lord, you'll notice, is a capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And again, if you're looking in Mark, you won't find this. You've got to go back to Psalm 110, which was written in Hebrew. That's a different word. That's not the name that God has identified himself by. That's a title. Adonai is the word in Greek. It means Lord. Now, it can also be used as a proper name because what we find is is that the Jewish people, they were very hesitant to use Yahweh, the given name of God. They were so terrified. How do you pronounce a name that has no uh, vowels in it? So they're very hesitant about pronouncing the name of God for fear that they would offend him in some way. So they would often use Adonai is the proper name for God. But in reality, it's a title. It means Lord or Master or Ruler or Sovereign. Adonai, this form of Lord, it's one that we could use with each other. It's a show of respect. Not all that different from the English word sir. That you would use this of someone, a king, a ruler, a master of some sort, that you could call them Adon. That's the singular for Adonai. So they would use this phrase. And so what we find here, is David is witnessing a conversation. He's witnessing a heavenly conversation between Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. David's listening in on this. So when when he writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now the Jewish people, they always knew this to be a messianic psalm. Of who else would God say, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? God wouldn't say that about anyone other than the Christ, Messiah, the son of David. So what Jesus is saying here is, we all know that the Christ is the son of David, and we all know that David wrote these words about the Christ, so that when we read, the Lord said to my Lord, what he's saying is, Yahweh said to the Christ, Yahweh said to Messiah, Yahweh said to the son of God. You with me? Okay, you're thinking like a first century Jew now, now you're ready for the question. So, Now David says, God says, verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? David calls Messiah Lord, right? And that's not up for debate, he says it. Yahweh says to the Lord, this is a messianic song. It's about the Christ. So Yahweh says to my Lord, this is David in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, these aren't just the, the mistaken words of David. This is the inerrant word of God. Yahweh says to my Lord and yet my Lord is the son of David, the Christ. No Jewish man would ever refer to his son as Lord. No Jewish man would ever refer to his son as Adonai, especially not the greatest king in the history of Israel. David would never refer to his son as Lord unless he was a whole lot more than his son. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Now you'll notice that Mark's gospel doesn't have any more commentary after that. Neither does Matthew or Luke. Mark tells us that the great throng heard him gladly. That's a real sad statement. These people, they were just entertained. They thought Jesus was just throwing out tricky questions just like everybody else. Oh, that's a good thought, Jesus. Yeah, I never thought of that before. They were entertained by his words, they were interested in his words, but they were completely unchanged by his words. Jesus wasn't trying to impress them, he was revealing himself to them. There's no greater gift in all the universe than the Son of God revealing himself. Helping these men that sought to destroy him, these men that would be calling for his death, helping them to see more clearly who he was. See more clearly what it meant for him to be the Christ. You remember that at the conclusion of his interaction with the scribe, he tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. There's a whole lot of people there that day that were not far from the kingdom of God. But they would always be on the outside unless they came to understand the identity of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, you will always be on the outside unless you come to understand the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves me, this I know is a great place to start. But dear friends, to cast aside the gift that is God's word, the self-revelation of God in his son Jesus Christ, to cast that aside is hard work. To cast that aside is a thing for the scholarly people, the theologians, the pastors. Is there anything sadder than this? If truly the greatest gift of this life, if truly eternal life is knowing God and his son whom he has sent, and we ought to cherish these words. We ought to delight in these words. And this is a gift from Jesus to these people. This is an invitation. Because he knew that many people standing there on that day, they recognized him as the son of David. They recognized him as the, cross, as the Christ. They saw in him a man, though. A great man, a powerful man, an authoritative man, maybe the greatest man that ever lived, but they saw in him nothing more than that. They completely missed it. As he said in another place, because they knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. To truly know the scripture, to truly embrace the power of God, then they would have seen. Then they would have understood that this one that stood before them, he wasn't just a man. It was God. David would never say of his son, David would never say of one that came from his lineage, you are my Lord. You are Adonai. And yet you must see that Messiah is not just the son of David. He is the son of God. He is not just David's son. He is David's God. That's why he calls him Lord. Before Abraham was, I am. It's what Jesus said. Standing there in that same temple complex less than a year before this at the Feast of Tabernacles. Making clear that he is God. I'm not merely a man. I'm not merely the greatest man. I'm not merely God's chosen man to represent him with, within his creation. I am God himself. The son of God has become the son of David. The incarnation. That's what we celebrate at this table in part. The son of God becoming the son of man. The son of God becoming the son of David. He's revealing that to these men, but because they don't know the scriptures, because they don't know the power of God, they completely missed it. That's the way Paul began his great epistle. Romans 1 begins like this as he talks about the gospel of God. Verse three, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It wasn't hard to figure out that Jesus was the son of David. You could track that down easily. But to recognize him as the son of God, it required the power of God. It required the working of God. Now, God had already declared it. You remember at his baptism, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There in that high mountain, as he revealed some of his glory, this is my son, listen to him. But certainly it is resurrection. He will declare Jesus to be his son yet again. This is my son. This is my beloved. This is my only son. And yet, the incredible mystery that comes within this, the reality that the Son of God could become the Son of Man, that the Son of God, the one who has always been God, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, that he would see fit to condescend, to step down, see the great humility in this, and take upon himself the fullness of of humanity. It's an impossible thing to understand. The incarnation in one person Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the fullness of God and the fullness of man. Without blending, without mixture, without loss. Turn with me to Philippians 2, if you will. I want you to see these words for yourself. You know this text by heart, probably many of you. But Philippians 2, we read about this exact thing. I begin in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he, hum- he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I need you to see the condescension of stepping down, of emptying himself. What did he empty himself of? Divinity? That can't happen. God can't stop being God. God can't lose any of his Godness. God neither increases nor decreases. This is what it means to be the infinite, eternal God of the universe. Jesus Christ, who has always been God, will always be God. He didn't empty himself of godness. He didn't empty himself of divinity. He took something upon himself, namely humanity, that clothed within that humanity would be all of deity, all of the divine, so that no longer would we see him in all his glory, that coming as a man, he would work, doing only the works that his father has called him to do, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, obeying the law in the power of the Holy Spirit, This is what it means to condescend, to step down, to be born of a man like David. Think about it, to be born a son of David. Every one of us would run around bragging to all our friends, wouldn't you? I'm a descendant of the greatest king that ever lived in the history of Israel, and yet there's been no greater step downward for the son of God than this. Stepping down from the greatness of heaven, from the glories of heaven, from the majesty of heaven, from a place of unending worship in heaven, to be born of a woman, to be born even of the greatest man that ever walked in Israel. It's an incredible step down. The humiliation that he took upon himself. This is what we come to celebrate at this table. We're reminded as we take this bread, we take this juice, it represents his body and his blood. God does not have body and blood unless the Son of God takes upon himself body and blood. The fullness of humanity, and he did it why? For the glory of God that he might die in our stead. That only a man could die to pay, the sin, pay for the sins of man. But only God could satisfy the wrath of God. Only God was worthy to die as a righteous substitute. Only God could fulfill the law. That's what we celebrate at this table. The fullness of God and the fullness of man dwelling in one person, Jesus Christ. And these men settled for an earthly savior. These men were disappointed that God didn't send to them another fallen earthly savior. Because dear friends, earthly saviors don't challenge you. Earthly saviors can be manipulated. Earthly saviors don't confront you in your sin earthly saviors don't look into your soul and tell you you must deal with what is within you and i am the only way that you're going to deal with it they were much more comfortable with an earthly savior so they completely missed who jesus was the difference you've got to understand they couldn't there was nothing they could have done to seen this rightly you remember that after peter made his confession that jesus was in fact the christ the son of the living god you remember what jesus told him blessed are you simon bar for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven It takes a supernatural work of God for you to look at a man called Jesus Christ, one in whom there is nothing majestic about this man that stood before them. There was nothing beautiful. There was nothing that would call them to believe in him as Jesus Christ, the son of God, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. So they rejected him. Now, they're gonna answer for that. They weren't innocent uh, bystanders. These men hated Jesus because he confronted them in their sin and in their power and in the kingdoms that they built. They truly hated him. They truly would call for his death. But apart from some intervention by God, apart from his supernatural awakening, apart from being born again, they were never going to recognize and They were going to completely miss him that Jesus Christ is God. And that was the problem. You'll notice that what he says here is that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand is a position of equal power, equal authority. This is a clear statement of divinity. To say to him, the Lord said to my Lord to sit at my right hand is saying that the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ he is equal with God because he is God. That's the blasphemy in their eyes. That was the, that, those are the words deserving of death. This is precisely why they wanted his life. As we come to the 14th chapter of Mark's gospel, what you'll find is he's standing there before the high priest, and they're making all kinds of false accusations against him, and they say, what do you say? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven and they lost their minds Tearing their clothes. What else do you need to hear? This man has uttered clear blasphemy He makes himself equal with God and again all he was doing was quoting Psalm 110 again It was the same psalm You see these people had always held up Psalm 110 as pointing to the Christ They'd always held it up as a messianic messianic psalm. So they asked Jesus. Are you the Christ? You do things like the Christ. These people think you're the Christ. He says, yeah, let me quote for you a psalm about the Christ. And they go, no, not like that. This is the insanity of sin. We look completely past the promises of God and settle for nothing. Settle for so much less. Historians tell us that the Jewish people, they backed off of holding Psalm 110 as a messianic psalm any longer. Now they tell you it's about one of the kings or it's about the people of Israel as a whole. They completely backed off because they couldn't hold to it because clearly Jesus had, he had exposited the psalm for them. Jesus was an expository preacher, by the way. He had exposited the psalm for them. He had shown them, this is what you're missing, that the Messiah isn't just an ordinary man. He is God. Equal authority, equal power, equal right to rule and reign as God. Churches, what we must remember as we prepare to come to the table. Because as we read the rest of that psalm, you listen to the rest of the words that David read for us there, what you recognize is that in these people's rejection of Jesus, in this partial hardening that came upon them, in the fact that they demanded the crucifixion and they saw in Jesus Christ a stumbling block, the fact that they cast him away as a stone that had no place in this building that they were building, dear friends, you must recognize they didn't win. Their rejection of Jesus Christ as their king, their rejection of Jesus Christ as their Lord, it didn't stop his reign or his rule. That's what David read about. That the enemies will be placed under his feet like a king with his boot upon the neck of his enemies. He will crush them all, every last one of them, and then return the kingdom to his father. As we continue on in in Philippians 2, we read this. Being obedient, being found in uh, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the way Jesus wins. You think you win by crucifying Jesus. This is the way he wins. This is the way he fought his battle. This is the way he destroyed his enemy. This is the way that he overcomes. But listen to what happens next. Therefore, therefore why? Because of all that he's done, and taking upon himself the fullness of humanity, and dying as an innocent substitute, and atoning for the sins of men, and crushing the head of the serpent. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and under the earth and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father dear friends Jesus Christ reigns he didn't go to heaven to lick his wounds and hope that somebody would believe in him he didn't die on the cross just to show of how much he hates sin. He didn't die on the cross just as a show of how much he loves us. Dear friends, Jesus Christ died on the cross to the glory of the Father as he crushed the head of the enemy. And he reigns from heaven today. The great coronation is Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father as he sits there. as the, His enemies become his footstool until the very last enemy is put to death, that last enemy being death. And then that trumpet will sound and Jesus Christ will return. That's why when we come to this table, we don't just commemorate his death. We don't just celebrate his resurrection. We look forward to his return. What do we say after we take the cup? Until he comes. Dear friends, Jesus Christ is coming, but we don't wait until his coming to recognize that he reigns today. Jesus Christ is king today. We see his rule, we see his reign in the hearts and lives of his people today. He allows the enemy to continue to run even though he's a defeated foe. He allows those that blaspheme his name to continue to scoff at him even though he is the righteous and just king of the universe. But the day will come where there will be no more evil. There will be no more scoffing. There will be no more laughing when every last enemy has been put to death, when Jesus Christ rids the earth of all evil and all rebellion and his people reign with him in perfect righteousness in unending peace in absolute joy, receiving pleasures like we could never imagine. Dear friends, this is what awaits those that see in Jesus Christ more than just a man, more than just some earthly Messiah, more than just a man that comes to bring you earthly peace and temporal pleasures. If you see in Jesus Christ the only Son of God, the one who is God himself, the one who's deserving of all worship and all honor and all praise. Dear friends, you shall reign with him forever. As we come to this table today and we take just a morsel, just a piece, knowing that Jesus Christ has promised to meet us here, he will meet you here and he will strengthen your faith because he's going to allow you to continue to walk through this earth. He's going to allow you to continue to walk in a world filled with sin and darkness and rebellion. He says, I'm going to strengthen your faith because I don't lose one that are mine. Not a single one that the Father has given me will be slipped will slip through my hands. And he says, you come to this table, and this is one of the means by which I will strengthen you. This is one of the means by which I will not lose you. That's what awaits us at this table. But dear friends, it's just a taste of the table to come. Because when the end of this life comes, when that final trumpet sounds, there will be a banquet like you have never imagined. We will sit there with our groom. The bride united with the groom, we will have a feast There will be no need of sun or moon there because the glory of Jesus Christ shall be our light. There will be no tears. There will be no sorrow. There will be no loss. There will be no lack. Dear friends, this is what we look forward to as we come to this table. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we confess that you would have been right, you would have been just had you just destroyed all humanity at the fall of Adam. And you certainly would have been right and you would have been just if you destroyed every single one of us when we joined him in his rebellion. But Father, we praise you that you are so very gracious and patient with us. We thank you that rather than watching us stew in our sin and our filth, Father, that you step down into this, that sending your son, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself the fullness of humanity, living the perfectly righteous life, and then being willing to impute that, to credit that to our account, if we would only just turn to him, confess our sin, and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. Father, we could ask for nothing more. And yet we confess this morning that more often than not, we look for earthly pleasures, just trinkets, just an ease to temporary suffering. So, Father, we pray that you forgive us, that you build within us a sense of anticipation and hope and joy that comes knowing that we too are sons of the most high God, not because of anything we've done, but because of adoption through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Father, prepare our hearts to come to this table now. Do not allow us to come with unconfessed sin, with unrepentant sin in our lives. Do not allow us to come while we live in disunity amongst this body. Help us to come as one. Help to come in a way that glorifies you and then here strengthen us. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.